back in the fur shed for episode 62 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood, and I miss you guys. I miss being in the fur shed, and I miss you. So uh, I miss talking with you about trapping uh, just on a on a one-to-one level, and we've done a couple of interviews uh, lately, and those have been great. Um, got a lot of good feedback from them. I think people enjoy hearing from other people. But you know what? I did a few interview podcasts, and I kind of missed the 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 one-on-one trap and talk, and just kind of um, let you know where I'm at and talking about different different things and topics. Maybe I'm just too much of a talker. Uh, so anyway, I I actually have a couple of interviews I've done, completed, and ready to go. And I'm going to put those off for a week, and I'm just going to do a regular old podcast from here in the first shed and, and chat with you. Uh, if you hear a little bit of sizzling in the background, I get some beaver fat uh, burning in the fur shed wood stove. <laughs> so uh, when you're low on firewood, that's kind of a, an interesting way to help keep things warm. It burns actually quite well. You just got to be a little careful with how uh, how much you put in at one time. Um, but anyway, uh, staying, staying warm despite the brutal, brutal winter we've been having here in northern Maine. We'll get into that. But first, the Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. That's their website. And they've got a whole variety of lures, baits, trapping books, DVDs, um, and traps. A bunch of different things to, to uh, get you going on your trap line. Great discount program there. A newsletter you can sign up for, and I just actually interviewed Kyle this morning. Had an awesome conversation with him. Had a lot of fun, and uh, I'm really excited to put that podcast episode up in a couple of weeks. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I know I did, and uh, and and I believe he enjoyed talking trapping with me as well. Um, just a, a really unique guy, and uh, I think uh, heck of a hard worker and a very successful. Uh, entrepreneur in the in the trapping world and beyond. So stay tuned for that. So let's get into things. Um, I want to talk a little bit. I've got a list that's probably I got a full page here. I probably have five episodes worth of topics here. So I'm, I know I'm not going to get anywhere near uh, completing all of them. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna bang them out here a little bit at a time. Um, First, I want to talk about my beaver trapping line, under ice beaver trapping that I've been doing so far this season. It's been quite the winter so far. Um, if In early January, I started beaver trapping through the ice, and it was just like under ice beaver trapping in February or March on a normal year. Um, we're talking a foot and a half to two feet of ice on the beaver lodges. Uh, two to three feet of snow on top of that ice and at least three feet of snow in the in the fields and three to four feet in the woods just unbelievable conditions we've had an an unreal amount of snow and cold weather this year so it's been quite something to try and uh, try and tackle the whole beaver trapping uh, thing up here Uh, but I you know I I, I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Finally, things started to slow down to where I had time to go out and, and set some things up. So I got started, and I had two places that I... Uh, well, one place I really needed to get to because I had a, a landowner that had been 
uh, chatting with me quite a bit, and and he was really concerned about uh, about beavers in his kind of his backyard. This is a place actually where I trapped last fall, and he had a beaver set up in this area where he hadn't there hadn't been beavers there for decades. Uh, they've been uh, upstream and downstream of here, but this particular year they set up and built a, a huge, massive dam, and it flooded his backyard and flooded his septic system and just made a huge mess for this guy. So I went over there last fall and I set it up and I ended up trapping. I actually did it early and, and it was a normal year, so we didn't have two feet of ice in December. Uh, I, I ended up trapping. Uh, catching seven beavers out of that lodge and um and he he went in and pulled the put a little hole in the dam the water drained out nothing patched up uh, everything was good so uh the the beavers did not come back all summer long everything was fine and uh problem solved well we had a really dry summer and this fall all of a sudden we started getting a bunch of rain and the guy showed up in my driveway and and uh, said, "I get beaver. The beavers are back. Are you sure they're back? Because I knew, you know, all this rain kind of rose, brought the water level up, and made made everything look, you know, everything was flooded, regardless of whether there were beaver there or not. And so he was convinced that the beavers were there. So anyway, long story short, had the health issues and everything else going on. Finally, I got around in, in early January to couple weeks ago to um, sh- go check it out and set up so I brought a- got all my stuff in the back of the truck and I went down there and I started scouting things out of course there's a bunch of ice and snow on top of the ice uh, but I looked around I brought my chisel and I I dug around and chipped the hole and and looked and looked and there was absolutely no beaver sign there <laughs> so I uh, I ended up you know I actually put up a YouTube video that you can check out on my my channel on trapping today on YouTube uh, that showed you know what to look for I put a couple videos up of what you should look for when you're looking for active lodges and what abandoned beaver lodges look like so in this case the you know the water was leaking underneath the dam there was no water spilling over top of the beaver dam the house was old there wasn't a single piece of vegetation or stick on the house that was um, that was less than a year old, there was no feed pile, and when I chipped a hole and started um, rooting around with my chisel and stuff flowed to the top, there was nothing fresh. So it was obvious there were no beavers in there. Uh, so I went back and talked to him, and said, you know, this is probably what happened. And when that we got that rain, it raised the water level, made it look like they were in there. Um, really what a guy's got to do in that situation is is make a nice big hole in the dam uh, so that beaver pond is not holding any water back. And then if the water comes up substantially, you'll know it's because of beavers. It's not because of a little bit of rain. So I was kind of disappointed, but he had, uh, his brother had a piece of land. And that's this is the beauty of uh, getting around and trapping, even though the fur prices are low and we're not making any money, you know, there's a lot of animal damage issues and being a beaver trapper up here and in many places in the U S can get you permission on a lot of places. 
So he said, my brother's got uh, beavers down behind his place, and I know they're in there. He said, uh, we were, uh, this is actually, this flowage intersects uh, farm road, and it goes to this back field, and they got tree stands. They deer hunt back there quite a bit. He said, during hunting season, we kept uh, pulling, uh, knocking that dam down so we could get through the road, and they, every couple of days, they were patching it up and flooding the road again. So he was, you know, guaranteed there were beaver here. So I, I went down the road. He called his brother up, told him I was coming there, and and uh, I got there, and and the guy explained everything to me, told me where to look and where the beavers were, and and uh, off I went. So I hiked down there uh, through the snow, got to the flowage, and again, we had had all this rain that brought the water level up, and then the water had dropped. And I looked at that dam, and it was obvious that beavers had been there, but the water was awfully low. And this was a beaver dam and beaver flowage that was in this this uh, alder flat. So tons of alder trees that had been flooded by the beavers. Um, but there was it was it was kind of a wide spot backwater on this this pretty decent sized stream that had been flowing a lot of water from the rain. And the the dam just was not holding near as much water as it had been before. So I was trying to figure out, first of all, where the heck are the beavers? I couldn't see a house anywhere. This dam isn't holding a lot of water. Um, are they still here? And, you know, how the heck am I going to set this up? So I started walking around and, and, and exploring here in this, this, uh, this beaver flowage. And as the water had been dropping, of course, the ice that had formed when the water was high uh, was kind of uh, it, it was it was frozen high, and below it was a layer of airspace, and then of you know six inches or more, and then you had the water. So. It was kind of a little bit of a sketchy situation. You got to be careful when you get into that stuff, where uh, where you know the ice isn't necessarily safe. If the ice is is suspended up in the air, um, you got to be very very careful. Uh, so I I poked around on that for quite a while, and finally I found this beaver house, this beaver lodge, and the lodge was in these alders. It was tucked back in the alders, and it really wasn't a very big lodge. It didn't really look like much at all. And I started, was wondering whether there were any beaver here. Uh, no feed pile to speak of, but of course when you've got uh, all that water and ice and then snow above the ice, uh, sometimes there is a feed pile, you just can't see it. Um, but it wasn't a big one. I couldn't, I couldn't see it anywhere above the snow um, or above the ice. So I started chipping holes. And uh, because you had that layer of air and layer of ice, it was actually... It wasn't very thick ice and it was easy to chip through, so I chipped, 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 and uh, uh, poked open three, four, five different areas around this house, and there were freshly peeled sticks, there were green sticks, and there there was obvious beaver activity here, so that was pretty encouraging. You know, I was hopefully going to salvage this day and actually be able to set some traps on beavers. Um, So this case... uh, it was a very shallow water around this house and where these these channels were and where it appeared that the beavers were traveling 
and it was actually just barely enough water to 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 be able to set a 330 body grip trap and have it completely suspended. So that's what I did. And I set three 330s in places where I believed the beavers were traveling based on the sticks and the kind of the shape of the uh, the the bottom um, of this pond. And uh, it, it just, it appeared that these areas were, were kind of travel ways and, and around them there were either alder trees or or was kind of uh, shallower water. So I set these up and I set them as blind sets, but uh, in addition to just having these 330 blind sets there with you know a few guide sticks around them, I decided to add a little bit of a bait component to these sets just because, I don't know, um, what if it wasn't a run? Because you couldn't really determine where, what direction the run was going in if it was a run. So what if I'd set right alongside of a run and my trap was actually set um, parallel, running parallel to the run so the beaver would just kind of cruise right by the trap? Um, I decided that uh, in that case, uh, if that was the case, uh, instead of, you know, one thing you can do is just kind of make a bunch of guide sticks and force the beaver to go through your trap. Um, but I, I decided in this case to add a piece of aspen to the jaw, uh, to one of the jaws of each of the 330s that I set. So it was kind of like a baited body grip set, uh, but the aspen was sitting on the on the the bottom of the pond, um, that jaw that was set down on the bottom, and it wasn't obstructing any part of, of that area, and it was kind of just like, you know what, it's possible if I'm not if I'm in the run I'm gonna catch a beaver. If I'm not in the run, uh, that beaver's going by, he might see that little piece of aspen go to pick it up and get caught in the 3:30. So I set that up. I set the three traps there and I took off. And uh, when I uh, on my way home, uh, previous to this, I actually had uh, looked on some aerial photos and I'd seen evidence of recent beaver activity. Uh, on a nearby drainage and I knew the guy that owned the land there I didn't really I don't talk to him all the time but I knew who he was and I'd met him before and I decided to, to stop in it was like a Sunday afternoon and I figured I'd stop in and just check in and see if he still had beavers there and and if he was interested in allowing me to trap there so I popped in and and he was home and and we got talking probably the uh, the second sentence that came out of his mouth, which I've heard uh, in talking with him since then about 10 more times, was, Kill them all! Take them all! <laughs> yeah, those beavers have cost me thousands and thousands of dollars of damage. They flooded a bunch of his fields, and it, uh, he had a bunch of uh, trees that were fairly quite valuable along the river bottom there that they'd flooded out and killed, either either flooded and killed or actually cut down for feed or for their their dams so um, he was pretty upset about about the beef and uh, he one of those kind of one of those tight-fisted farmers that uh, it's funny because he 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 lost thousands of dollars of damage to the beavers but instead of actually you know hiring somebody to kill those beavers for maybe you know three four hundred dollars 
uh, he wouldn't spend a penny on it. And, and of course, they're out there with 22s trying to shoot the beavers and, and everything else. But um, when it came to a guy showing up and, and actually wanting to trap the beavers, he was ecstatic. So uh, he, he, seen, he actually mentioned that nobody wants to trap these anymore. Nobody traps beavers. They, they all talk. They say they're going to come down trapping them. And uh, unless, those, unless the beavers jump in the truck, they don't want anything to do with them. Too much work. And I said, well, I, I know what that's like. You know, it is a lot of work. Um, but, you know, I'm not doing it for the money. And, and uh, I'm just, you know, I, I really enjoy it. And, and so I'll go down and check things out. And so I, I just kind of got on snowshoes and, and walked around there for a while and scouted. I'd seen, I found a huge flowage that the dam was still holding water, but the, the house had obviously been abandoned. And so I just kind of kept walking upstream until I found an active uh, beaver lodge. Uh, and there was no feed bed evident above the ice level. But as I, I chipped a test hole with my chisel uh, and I got through the ice, that was actually, there was a lot of ice there. Uh, but I finally got through it. And geez, there was, there was probably 20 inches of ice. Once I got through that though, there was five and a half feet of water between the the ice and and the bottom of the stream and this was this was a dam that was on the stream so the house looked pretty small from above the ice but we think about 20 inches of ice and then you know five feet of water um, the how a lot of the house was actually <laughs> probably uh, covered up you just couldn't see it it, it was uh, it was bigger than it looked so um, so I decided to set that up and actually that was toward, I didn't have what I needed to set it up at the time, but I had the day off the next day. And so Monday morning I showed up there and I, I went through and, and uh, parked in the road and walked it was about 200 yards from the truck to, to get to this spot. And I went in and, um, and I started to set up. So what I did in this particular lodge, because the water was so deep um, and, and you'll notice this in a lot of, uh, your experiences with beaver trapping is it's going to depend a lot of the sets that you're going to make is going to depend on the particular circumstances uh, of whatever uh, where you're trapping and uh, in in the environment that you're trapping in and I had kind of two extremes here I had uh, 12 inches to 14 inches of water and I had five and a half feet of water just uh, within a few miles of each other. So in this case, it's it's very difficult to locate a run when you have five and a half feet of water between the top, you know, between the ice and, and the stream bottom. And, uh, you know, you could set up right next to the house, but the the you may or may not be, you know, if you can't find that exact run, you may or may not be setting your blind set where you need to set it if that makes any sense. So in this case, one of the the more successful methods that I've been able to use in deep water has been uh, snaring, um, baited, especially baited snare pole sets. So that's what I decided to do. I, I uh, actually brought my chainsaw, which was a, a good move with all that ice, and I cut a couple of holes right within five feet of the the beaver lodge and uh, got things all cleaned out 
and and got the ice clear and and the slush cleaned out of the holes and i i had cut i had pre-cut these uh baited aspen uh these aspen poles which which would serve as the bait and i brought i had hauled those in with me and i proceeded to set up a snare pole set um the the first one we're talking five and a half feet of water um once I, I got that pole driven into the bottom and I started setting my snares, you know, you're setting these, uh, you're, you're basically setting two snares opposite of each other uh, at the same height and same, same level in the water column. And depending on how deep the water is in your particular setup, you could have a pole that has two snares on it, four snares, or even six. And this was one of the rare cases where I actually had six snares, three tiers of snares set up on this pole. Uh, so I set that one up and then I went to the next setup and that was just, that was like probably a foot shallower and and uh, I ended up setting two tiers with four snares on that pole. So I had two baited pole sets straight next to the lodge. Uh, one of the things that I've learned with, with the snare poles and, and probably I should have done things a little bit different in this case but it, it ended up working out is uh, the, the the guys that are very successful make set a lot of snare poles out. It's all numbers game. And if you go to a lodge and you set up, and, and I'll reiterate this in future podcast episodes and, and future Underhouse Beaver talking uh, demonstrations and talks, uh, Underhouse Beaver trapping, the, really, in order to put the odds in your favor, you got to have you got to have more than one or two sets out there. And the guys that do it successfully, you're talking three, four, five different snare pole sets um, in in a, one single uh, beaver lodge. Because a lot of things can go wrong. It's not like you're setting a 330 in a channel right coming out of the house. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? A beaver's going to go through there and you're going to catch it. Um, the snares... You know, we could go into it. I, I guess I won't go into it in too much detail right now. But uh, from snares being fired off accidentally, from uh, beaver stealing the bait and not getting caught, there's just a wide variety of things that can happen in, in baited snare pole sets uh, that uh, you, you really need to have a large number of sets out in order to increase your odds of making a catch. Uh, so I set those two, and then I, I actually had... Um, I decided to set along the dam as well because, you know, these beavers are, are patrolling and moving along the dam in addition to, um, to, to cruising around between the house and the feed pile. They got to keep make sure, making sure that dam is maintained and it's not leaking water. And if it's leaking, they patch it up and so forth. So, uh, as the beaver travel along the dam, if you put a little piece of feed in front of them, uh, they're very likely to uh, to uh, be interested in that, and that's what I did. I did what I call the Johnny Thorpe uh, baited 3:30 swinging set, and I'll talk about this in a little more detail in the future when we talk about the Johnny Thorpe under ice beaver trapping DVD. Uh, but this set is something that I've been hesitant to use for a long time, and this is the first year that I've tried it out. And I set two of those along uh, the face of this dam. Uh, 
So I had four sets in this lodge. So I had the first lodge that I set up, I had those three 330s. In the second lodge, I had uh, two baited snare poles and two baited 330 swinging sets. So I went back to work for the next five or six days. And the following weekend, uh, we had actually a snowstorm in between. And uh, uh, back to, you know, we had, we, it was just, it was all cold weather the whole time. And so I came back to revisit the sets on my first day off. And, you know, one of those things, one of the things about under ice beaver trapping, if you can and you don't have to check those sets, you know, every three days, I think Minnesota has a three day check. A lot of states have, have pretty restrictive check laws, even though you're under ice. Maine has an exception. If you're under ice, you don't have a, a check time restriction, which makes it really nice. Uh, you can trap on the weekends, you can trap, uh, you know, you, you can, you don't have to, if you have a wicked bad snowstorm and severe weather, you don't have to, you know, risk your life or go out there and check it just for the sake of checking it. You can wait. And so I waited and it was five or six days and I came back and I had, uh, one of the best checks that, that I've had beaver trapping, um, as far as percentages, so I had those seven sets out, and in those seven sets, I caught six beavers. The first lodge I'd set up with those three three thirties, every one of those, all three of those had beavers in them. One beaver had had chewed on the bait, so um, I'm assuming that maybe the bait had something to do with that beaver being caught. The other two had not touched the bait; they, it was just that those indeed were travel ways, and and I caught them. Uh, moving through so I was three for three in that first lodge where I didn't know if there were many beavers at all the second lodge I was three for four uh, both snare pole sets had beavers on them and one of the Johnny Thorpe swinging 330 baited sets had a beaver in it the one closest to the house and nothing had gone all the way on the far end of the dam where I had a set another set uh, that was not visited but I had seven so that was pretty awesome. Um, I did the same thing. I remade all those sets. Um, the first lodger, I had three conibears, three dead beavers. When I, I remade that, I wasn't really sure what I'd, if I'd get anything because there was no real sign of any other beaver activity. Um, but I reset it just to be sure. The landowner, one of those gone. And uh, the other one, I reset everything. And I went back. The the first setup where I had those three 330s, uh, five or so days later, nothing. And actually skipping forward, uh, I went back there uh, three, four days after that, nothing again. Nothing had touched anything, nothing had moved through. So that was a case where there were three beavers living in that lodge. I caught all three of them and, and there's nothing left. So that was successful as far as, you know, uh, capturing those animals efficiently and the animal damage control aspect of it, the landowner's not going to have to worry about beavers going back through there uh, until, you know, probably springtime when the migration is on and they're moving again. The second place, uh, I went back and I um, I revisited those, those four sets and I had um, two beavers and both of those beavers were caught in the snare pole sets. Um, 
nothing had gone to the dam uh, to check out those swinging 330s. So again, uh, at that point I was 4 for 4 in the under ice beaver snares. Uh, I reset everything there and I went back uh, 3 4 days later and I caught two more beavers and they this was a very rare occurrence where I caught two beavers on one snare pole. That almost never happens. Usually you catch one and they tangle things up pretty good and the other snares aren't really functioning. Um, maybe the fact that I had six snares on this one, I think I caught one beaver on the top and the second one on the bottom. Um, but anyway, that brought the total that lodge up to seven beavers. And that number seven was the first kit that I caught in that lodge. So I assume there's probably, you know, there's probably one or two more kits in that lodge. Um, I, I'm guessing probably caught all the adults. Um, but I actually ended up pulling the traps there because I'd pulled the other lodge and I didn't want to travel all the way out there. Uh, I talked to the landowner and and uh, I just was straight with him. I said, listen, you know, I can't drive all the way out here, uh, walk 200 yards through the snow, and chip through ice for the potential of catching one or two kits. You know, I'd, I've been here for, you know, I've been here, I've actually, I'd been there five times, I guess, two uh, a scouting trip, a setup, and three checks, and uh, I just—it's just not worth it to go back. And and for a guy, you know, he was, oh, are you sure? Are you sure? I want you got to kill them all. And there's, and and uh, but he just couldn't. I don't think he could bring himself to say, I'll give you twenty-five dollars if you a beaver if you if you come if you set back up and you catch those last few. Um, just the you know the old school tight-fisted mentality. Just he just couldn't get away from that. So, uh, which was fine with me. I said, hey, listen, I'll be back in the spring. I'll be trapping in, in the area. And uh, let me know if you see any more activity this spring. Um, I'll probably be able to catch some more beavers that are moving through and maybe catch those the ones that are were left in that house. Um, so it was pretty good. But anyway, I caught uh, 10 beavers out of those two lodges and pulled out. We got a couple more massive snowstorms. I had some really busy times at work, so I kind of uh, tucked in and, and settled down for a little bit, and uh, we actually, the latest storm we got, it's actually raining right now for the first time, it's the first time we've gotten above freezing here in at least a month, maybe a month and a half or so, um, and it's supposed to be up above freezing for like 12 hours and then get back down below zero. Um, but we're getting some rain, but but this is raining on top of 20 inches of snow that we just got that had snowed on top of an existing three feet. So uh, it's pretty pretty impressive amount of snow around here, and hoping that this uh, this rain will kind of pack things down a little bit, so I can get out and do a little more scouting onto some some additional lodges that I have. I know there are beaver in the vicinity. I just haven't been able to get in there preseason and and actually locate uh, those particular houses that have beavers in them. So I need to get out on snowmobile and snowshoes, pound the ground a little bit once this this all kind of crusts over and freezes, do some digging and chipping, and get at some more beavers. So uh, the under ice beaver trapping has only begun. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing more. But for now, I've got a whole bunch of beavers here in the fur shed that I get to work up. 
that's my trap line as of late. And the beauty of beaver trapping in Maine is that our season goes to the end of April. So there's lots to come. And uh, I, I don't have to worry about not being able to trap for uh, the rest of the season. Um, it'll be, you know, we've got that May 1st through uh, October 15th period of time uh, where we can't trap. Uh, but until then, um, I'm going to still get out there here and there and, and kind of keep things going. All right. Now, the previous, the, the last episode that I did that was a non-interview, it's kind of one-on-one with you guys, was titled, What Do You Want From Me? And if you remember, I, I asked listeners to uh, give me some ideas on what you'd like to see as far as like a winter project that I I wanted to work on, um, what you would be willing to pay for uh, from trapping today from me, uh, something that that I could work on and put together to provide value for you, and also kind of uh, you know keep the lights on and keep paying the bills here as well. Um, and I, I kind of offered you know a few T-shirts uh, in exchange for some good ideas, and and I did get some good ideas. Uh, but the feedback, I don't, there really wasn't any slam dunk. And, and maybe that's my, uh, maybe, maybe that's my fault that uh, I, I kind of expected listeners to, uh, to all just kind of come up with one singular thing that they wanted to see. And, uh, and make it kind of a no-brainer for me, and and that's absolutely not the case. Uh, there was a wide variety of suggestions um, that I received. There were some some really good ones. Uh, there was some people put a lot of thought into it, which I really appreciate. Um, I have a few that I'll just kind of th- I'll, I'll kind of rattle off here. Um, somebody wanted to you know maybe do some videos on. Uh, trapping with cubby boxes, uh, whether it be the Lynx exclusion devices that I use or or other, you know, trapping for coons with 220s or 160s or whatever. Um, suggestion for a ride-along or kind of doing instruction or a course. T-shirts, selling T-shirts, trapping today. Uh, booklet on fur bearer tracks. Uh, Several people mentioned the book that I'd mentioned. I talked about maybe writing about a legendary trapper. Um, someone asked for a book on trapping with Lynx exclusion devices in Maine. Um, there was a suggestion about training for new trappers. Uh, there were there were a few other things as well. There's a wide variety of of thoughts, but nothing really jumped out at me. And and uh, kind of thinking back on it maybe I was uh, maybe I was looking for something that wasn't quite there you know maybe maybe there really is no answer to this one thing that I can put out there that is just gonna catch fire maybe it's just a slow uh, steady continuation of the podcast and the website and the supply trapping supplier reviews and the you know various things that I'm doing on trapping today and in a little bit of book stuff and and YouTube videos and interviews, you know maybe it's just continuing on with that. So it really got me thinking. I I, I thought back to um, 
I thought back to something I had read quite a few years ago, um, and uh, just for those who aren't familiar, I'm really into outdoor writing, and uh, I love reading hunting and fishing uh, books um, and old-time hunting and fishing stories. And I actually have a website called OutdoorSportingLibrary.com where you can go on and I have a bunch of book reviews that, that I've written over the past, oh, seven or eight years. And my favorite outdoor writer was a guy named Edmund Ware Smith. Most of you probably haven't heard the name Ed Smith. He lived from 1900 to 1960, so he hasn't been around for a very long time. Uh, but but Smith was a very popular outdoor writer way back in the day. He wrote hunting and fishing stories primarily uh, based in Maine. Uh, he lived in Maine. He grew up in Massachusetts and moved out west when he was a kid and, and moved back. And, and he ended up uh, spending, uh, m- I think, most of his adult life in Maine. And he'd write for the major magazines at the time when, basically before most people had television sets and you know back in the 40s he was writing he was he was writing for like Saturday Evening Post and uh, Collier's a bunch of those magazines are were basically where the majority of people got their entertainment on a Saturday night they were actually reading books and magazines and he was a huge name he wrote for uh, for Outdoor Life and and all those uh, Field and Stream magazines as well um, he wrote a collect collections of stories, fiction, and nonfiction. Uh, he ended up writing a total of ten books. Um, but one of those books was called. Uh, it was very unique, and it was titled "From Fact to Fiction," and it was unlike any of his other books. And really, it's a very rare book, and only people who are really appreciative of the uh, writing side of Ed Smith. Uh, would would really get this, um, but the book was basically uh, a writing professor at a university uh, was teaching a class, and he had Edmund Ware Smith in there helping him teach the class to aspiring fiction writers back when this was a career, just like today it would be teaching a class for YouTubers, I guess. <laughs> And uh, Smith, this book was basically a collection of lessons. Each chapter was kind of a lesson that was taught in the class. And Smith would teach a certain aspect of fiction writing or outdoor writing and have a few pages where he'd he'd talk about uh, the different aspects behind that topic. And then he would show an example of a story he wrote based on those uh, particular aspects. And one of the things, just getting bringing this all back to, you know, what do you want from me? Uh, one of the things he talked about in a section of that book was, um, was critics. And uh, who, who is your best critic? You know, who decides on whether what you're doing, whether, and I, I think of this in terms of writing, in terms of podcasting now, um, videos, whatever, whatever you're making, 
who is it that you can trust and rely on to steer you in the right direction on how you should be doing things. And um, he he mentioned, you know, you, your family, immediate family, your friends, uh, other people in the in the industry that you're working in. Um, you know, there's a wide variety of people that you can bounce ideas off and ask. Because really, they don't know you're writing. If it's family, they're just going to tell you it's great, even if it's not. Um, if it's friends, they may say whatever's convenient. Um, if it's other professionals, they may be overly critical uh, based on, on their ideas or competitiveness or whatever. We said, really, your best critic is yourself. Look in the mirror. Who knows you and who knows your writing better than you? And who knows the, your projects and your abilities better than you? Who knows what you enjoy and what you like to do better than you? So he said, if you can train yourself to be a better critic, in the end, um, that's what you really need to rely on. And so that I, I say all that to say it's kind of like a I, that flashback and my memory of reading that kind of kind of hit home when when I get this feedback on you know what do you want from me? What do you want me to work on? And I get to thinking, well, you know what? Maybe maybe I need to decide what I'm going to work on. And if you guys like it and uh, you respond positively, then I was right. If you don't, then maybe I was a little off. Maybe I got to learn to be a little better critic and, and better have better judgment on what I should work on. And we'll try something different. So I guess that's where I'm at. And I'm not sure what I'm going to work on or if anything, um, or if I'm just going to keep plugging away. But I appreciate the feedback that you guys have given me. Um, I haven't given any shirts away yet. Those are still up for grabs. So uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll find an opportunity uh, to to give those out in the future. Um, but that's where I'm at with what do you want from me. I, I didn't want to leave that hanging for more than a couple weeks. And uh, thanks again for all the suggestions. All right, so since I miss you guys, I wanted to get into some listener feedback and emails and um, and so on. So the first thing I wanted to get into was the iTunes reviews. And a great way to support the podcast and to help things grow is to leave a rating and review on iTunes if you're listening to the podcast through iTunes. Um, I really would appreciate that. That is That go, does go a long way. So um, just uh, wanted to go through some of the reviews. We've got 52 ratings. Um, most of those are five-star ratings. I very much appreciate that. And then we got people who have left reviews. Um, this guy, skeptical at first. Fantastic podcast. Said, uh, PA Fly Fishing said, was skeptical to find a good trapping podcast. But this is perfect. Great podcast. So that's cool. Um, Virgin Trapper. I first found Trapping Today on the internet. New to podcasts and am absolutely in love with them. Thanks for sharing your information with everyone. And I was able to bag my first fisher and a couple badgers in the last two weeks. Minnesota, we only have a six-day season on fisher, so I'm absolutely pumped to put a tag on one. At 42, it's always something I wanted to try, and I'm hooked for life. Thanks again for your willingness to share information. It's greatly appreciated. Um, Ringtail Cat, listening to Jeremiah's enthusiasm got me out trapping again. I haven't trapped for 30 years, but I'm back doing it again. That is, that is, oh, I love that. Absolutely love that. That is great. Thank you, Ringtail Cat. 
Uh, Ever Trap, great listen and information for trappers in any state. Uh, J-S-O-N-O-P. Uh, as others have said, this is an excellent podcast. Jeremiah is a wealth of information, always willing to reach out and help whoever he can. Easy, easy listening, very clear and concise. If you're, tr- you're a trapper, you need to be listening. Uh, Get a Griff says, just found this podcast, listened to several episodes. They're very well done. Get a Griff is very brief and to the point, and I appreciate that. That's fine. Um this uh, Yancey Greenhorn show is easy to listen to, full of info. I was honestly astounded when he responded to my questions, not only by email, but also live in the show. Really uh, showed me he takes interest in helping people learn. One of the fellows that helped me figure out how to trap my first beaver last week. Um, a lot of awesome. I know who you are, Yancey Greenhorn, and... Um, I love hearing from you all of the time and continue to email me. Appreciate it. Um, lots more there. I may have read a few of these others. Um, aren't many trapping podcasts out there. This is by far the best one on iTunes. Um, don't tell that to Chris at Coyote Trapping School. He's got a really good one too. Um, great audio covers topics that will help out both new and experienced trappers doesn't try to sell you any gimmicks or convince you that he has all the answers. Well, that's true. I definitely don't have all the answers. Um, thank you, Robert. And uh, I believe I've read a bunch of the others. But anyway, thanks, guys. If you can continue to leave those reviews, what it does basically just uh, boosts up our rankings in iTunes. And it tells the algorithm that people like this, so we should promote it a little more. And then when someone searches around for podcasts, they may find Trapping Today and start listening. So that is greatly appreciated. I want to get into some listener emails. All right, I was just looking through e- the Trapper emails. just got a new one while I was looking at this guy. He's writing an article about pelt prices in British Columbia. Um, so kind of interesting there. But anyway, uh, Ed asked about long-term fur storage, and I responded to Ed. He basically was saying, you know, with the low fur prices, uh, what are your thoughts on, or do you have any suggestions for storing storing fur um, to keep it from basically going bad? Um, and if you, uh, if you get on trappingtoday.com or just do a Google search for long-term fur storage, I did an article on that, I believe, about a year ago on some suggestions on what you can do to uh, keep fur good for a year or two um, to store it so that um, you know you can maybe wait things out and uh, you can um, buy yourself a little bit of time in case the market gets a little better uh, free to sell sell that fur so that's out there and available uh, let's see we have Dan, Dan from Minnesota was asking about a beaver. He's beaver trapping on the river. Um, and he says he's looking for bank dens on the river, which is actually really tough. <laughs> and so he says he lives in the Red River Valley in Minnesota. Um, and, um, He's doing a little bit of fisher trapping, trapping coyote, fox, beaver, mink this winter. And 
as asking about how do you find bank dens and he has 15 inches of ice on uh, on the river and wants to be able to figure out where the runs are and this is a really tough one really um, and and I'm guilty of this Dan uh, obviously I, I have a hard time finding runs this time of year as well and the reason for that is fall is a busy time and if you really want to know where all these runs are, you got to scout them out during the fall. The best thing you can do is to go out uh, in the fall during hunting season. is a good time. Just, you know, you're roaming around with a rifle uh, during deer season or bird season. And uh, mark these spots off with your GPS or if you get your cell phone with the Onyx map, uh, Onyx app, you can, you can mark them really easily. Um, basically any any type of GPS uh, mark the houses and then with the runs uh, you know if you only have a few to check you can just kind of keep that in your memory bank of where that run comes out from uh, from the den um, any any den in the riverbank is usually going to be capped with some sort of sticks or mud so it's hard to see under snow and ice but uh, in the fall it should be pretty easy to see and then late in the fall, you're going to see some feed piles, feed beds, um, and and you can mark those. As far as actually marking the runs, uh, short of like drawing a picture of the thing and having it marked in your GPS and going by memory in a picture, uh, you know there there are other ways to do that. You can you can mark the kind of go on the edge of the run with uh, with a really long stick or a pole. And you can mark that so that you can go back under ice and and usually be able to to kind of just get in there and, and chip it out. If you have shallow water, the the runs are fairly easy to find. If you have shallow water and you have a lot of beaver activity, because the beavers are going to be moving back and forth between the den and and any source of feed, and in doing so, they're going to keep the the water moving. And they're going to keep the ice from freezing very thick over top of that run. So if, if you're in shallow water, I've seen, I've been in February trapping in like, you know, 10 below zero and have open water at the entrance of a, a beaver lodge. Because in that, actually that lodge, we, we caught 10 beavers out of that one lodge. And there were just so many beavers moving in and out of that thing that they, they kept the water uh, open even where it was frozen up there was only like an inch of ice um, over top of that run as the water gets deeper in places you're that's not going to happen all that turbulence is going to be near the bottom so it's not going to reach the surface and the surface is going to freeze down hard uh, sometimes you can use your chisel or your spud and you can you know uh, hit the ice with your chisel and you'll hear this hollow sound where the run is because not only is the ice a little thinner but you're going to have air pockets um, every time the beaver is leaving the house you know in the house they're in, in uh, they're out of the water and they've got you know they're, it's, they're basically they're in the air and anytime an animal goes from the air and dives into the water there are going to be um, air bubbles that are trapped in their fur that are going to be released and will float to the surface and get caught under the ice. Uh, they're also potentially going to release a little bit of air from their lungs, um, but but all that air that kind of gathers up underneath the ice 
if you're chipping, you can oftentimes hear that air spot and hear kind of an echo as you, you chip with your chisel. Um, but when you have 15 inches of ice or more, eh, that's you're not going to be able to figure that out. So uh, at that point, your best bet is look for a feed pile, feed bed. If you can find a feed bed, you're going to be able to figure out where those beavers are. They're all they're going to be between the house and the feed bed. So if you can't find the house or the den, find the feed bed and set along the edge of the feed bed. Uh, if you can't find either of them, well, you're just not going to find any beavers. You might find some dams uh, if it's a smaller stream or river system. But, uh, you know, that that's where scouting comes in. But but basically, you know, it's not easy, but it can be done. Um, there's there's a few things that you can try uh, and, and see if you can figure that out. So good luck, Dan, and uh, wishing you the best. Hope you're able to get into the beavers this winter. Steve and Jeff from Wisconsin heard back from Steve after a couple of weeks. If you remember, he's the one who was trapping using uh, Trapping Today Long Distance Call Lure. Uh, they caught a nice fisher and uh, just a, a really great guy, great email. And uh, I wanted to follow up because he, he just wrote me again and, and uh, he said, sorry, it's taken a bit to get back to you. I did not get around to listening to episode 56 till last Sunday. Um, been pretty busy and appreciate you reading the letter on the podcast. Played for played it for all family and friends and everyone thinks it is pretty cool. Uh, let's see. Email's getting cut off. Um, and and he's talking about Jeff, his, his trapping mentor. He says all these years of trapping, he still has the enthusiasm of a kid. He was grinning to ear to ear when he said he sent him a free bottle of long-distance call lure. Um, which I, I did send along, and I, and I hope Jeff continues to use that stuff. Um, so since my last email, as I said, it's been pretty busy. I've been on vacation from work and free to trap at will, and I've taken advantage of it. I've not connected to uh, Fisher yet, but Jeff did. Um, you long-distance call lure of yours works. There's no doubt about it. Our Fisher season he- here ends Sunday. Still have all my sets out and remain hopeful I will connect with one as well. The weather here has been crazy. It sounds like it was there as well. We had rain that washed out a bunch of our snow, pulled my canine sets, but not before I caught a nice gray fox. Hoping to get out with some cable restraints sometime this month for coyotes. We were pulling our under ice muskrat sets yesterday and the coyotes are running. It should be fairly easy to pattern them and hopefully get a few of the cable. It would be another first for me as I've not yet caught a coyote with a cable restraint. Sounds like you had a productive Martin Fisher line this year. I was truly impressed with by the fishers you connected with. I have to admit, I'm pretty jealous of you running the trap line on snowmobile. That sounds super cool, something I hope to do someday. Also, listening to you talk about running the Ermine line with your boy is pretty cool. Very much looking forward to teaching my grandkids how to trap. Jeff and I are putting in Ermine sets this weekend, and we will run the Otter Line until we connect, or when the season ends, the last day of March. Ah, that'll be quite a quite a deal. I think I think you're gonna get a uh, I think you're gonna get an Otter, Steve. Each of us drew two tags this year, so hopefully we'll start connecting um, soon. There's a lot of Otter signs, so we're hopeful. Anyway, I won't keep you. I just want to say a huge thank you for including us in the podcast. I've attached some pictures. Jeff and his fisher and me with my gray fox. I am pretty proud of him. 
he's getting mounted. I also put in some pictures of our otter sets because it's so remote, magical place only a trapper can truly appreciate. Absolutely, and, and those are some pretty awesome pics, Steve. Um, really nice, nice fox. Absolutely love it. Look at those. I'm looking at pictures now. Those guys uh, wading around and waders uh, with their pack baskets and and getting some otter sets put in. So um, awesome to see guys uh, continuing to to run the trap lines. All right, we got an email from Chris, and Chris had a bunch of things uh, that we emailed back and forth about, but one I wanted to talk about was um, flushing beams. He asked about size recommendations, and that's a really good question. He was uh, talking about beaver and maybe a good size for bobcat and coyotes, and I just threw out that, uh, you know, what I use, um, I use the same beam, uh, fox, coyote, fisher, beaver, and, and my flushing beam, a lot of guys use like the, the six inch wide. Mine is five and a half inches wide and it's 60 inches long. Um, you know, in beaver trapping, you know, a lot of people use seven inch wide beams for beaver trapping as well. Um, really, it, this depends, I think, on preference. Anything between five and seven inches wide will work for all those species, uh, except maybe like your smaller fox and fisher, seven inches might be a little bit wide. Um, but five and a half, the only reason I use that is because um, that's what I had when I started. So that's that's a beam that was available. It was a little narrower than what I wanted to use, but I have it here, and that's, that's what I was using for a long time. I flushed a lot of animals with it, and I kind of got used to it. So, you know, I'd, if I was to buy one again, I'd probably buy the same, the same exact size beam. Um, but if I spend a year on a seven inch wide beam, I might get used to that as well. So, so really is preference, but five and a half to seven seems to be a good range. All right, Bruce. So Bruce, um, got back into trapping, listens to the podcast every week, um, with his daughter and, uh, he sent me a picture. Let's see. Um, and he, or he said, quick story. As you know, we coon hunt quite a bit and have some really good hounds, but I haven't trapped since a kid. I got my two daughters now. He's got one that's a year old. Um, listen to their podcast, and um, he he talked about getting into, and his wife's listening to the podcast. Um, he talked about getting into some trapping this year, and he had some time off. Okay, I'm catching up on the emails here. So, all right, here we go. Um, he did some under ice beaver trapping for the first time and caught his first two beaver ever. Uh, first night catch, two beaver, one raccoon, one possum. Obviously the coon and the possum were not under ice. Um, and he, he had, um, he had a couple questions about skinning and removing, uh, the casters from beaver. Uh, I have YouTube videos on both of those things, so there's there's a lot of resources there. Um, but that was pretty cool. I know B, uh, Bruce had talked about getting out there and setting some traps uh, during his vacation time, and he actually got out there and had some success. That's awesome. Um, Jason. Uh, Jason is from Maine, and this is the first time that I've heard from him, and, and this is a really great email. I was excited to hear this. So he says, Jeremiah, I just wanted to let you know I really enjoy your podcast every week. 
I found it in the spring and went back and listened to every episode. I also enjoy the YouTube videos. I had never trapped before and really learned a lot from you. This year, my daughter had showed some interest in it. She's 12 years old and started hunting this year. And the next thing she wanted to try was trapping. So I made three links exclusion boxes, two for 120s and one for 220. I bought some brand new traps, um, but he ended up uh, only setting out two of the three boxes. Uh, we ended up setting out two boxes the day before Thanksgiving and ended up getting our first fisher on December 2. Then on December 23, we got a weasel and fisher number two. <laughs> It's easy to be 100% successful when you only have two traps. <laughs> um, but boy, that is awesome. So Steve set, uh, or sorry, Jason set two traps and he caught two fishers and a weasel essentially in his backyard. Uh, that was, that's really, really, really cool. Um, fishers went into the 220 box, one that goes straight and has a baffle six inches in, then straight again. Um, weasel was taken in the 120 box. I did end up getting five red squirrel, four of them in the 220s. Um, all right, I uh, the male fisher weighed 11 and a half pounds, and we had we're having it mounted. Um, other uh, the guy sent it to the taxidermist. The other fisher we're also having mounted, and a guy at my work is buying it for his camp. The weasel we're having freeze dried to put alongside our fisher. Me and my daughter have learned so much and had so much fun doing this. We found ourselves missing it already, and I can't wait for next year. We might even double our trap line for next year. I plan on giving your LDC lure a try, too. Uh, this year, we just use skunk essence and Vaseline um, and so on. So, Jason, uh, that is really cool. Thanks so much for listening and getting your, your uh, daughter into trapping. Uh, that is just the greatest thing ever. Uh, absolutely love it. And keep on listening, keep on trapping. Uh, awesome, awesome stuff. So we are over an hour into the podcast episode now, and I've covered three topics of the oh, 15 or so that I wanted to, that I had written down. So I guess that's it for now. We'll have to wait until a future episode. Um, we're going to have a couple of interviews coming up that I think you're really going to enjoy. And I will touch back, uh, touch touch base with you again uh, before too long and catch up on, on some other topics. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for listening in. Uh, and I love, uh, love doing this and chatting with you guys. If you want to contact me at any time, send me an email at jrodwood at gmail.com. That's J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. And we will catch you on the next episode of the Trapping Today podcast.